Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow." His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Speed of God. Isn't that like one of the most beautiful things you ever heard? You guys can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word, the beauty of your word, the majesty of your word. We're thankful for the inerrancy of your word. We're thankful that your word is altogether authoritative, that when we read your word, when we hear your word, we are hearing your very words from your mouth. They have all authority as if you were speaking to us, because that is exactly what you're doing. We thank you that your word is sufficient, that it meets every single need of human beings, especially that they would be saved. And we pray, Lord, that this morning, as we open your word, 
that we would sense that, that we would sense the power of your word in our lives. Lord, that we would know that we had met with the living God. Lord, and that's something only your Holy Spirit can do. We pray, Lord, that you would feed us both through the giving of your word and the taking of the Lord's Supper. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Hey, guys, we're super thankful that you're here. Last week, we were in Colossians 3, and we saw that the way we become more Christ-like is by consistently setting our minds on him. And yet, guys, we are very distracted people, are we not? We're very distracted people. We have a hard time with that. We have a hard time focusing on the things that matter most, whether that's our family, whether that's friends, whether that's the church, or especially Christ. We have a very hard time focusing. We saw last week, if we don't set our minds in the things of Christ, then we're going to think about the same things the culture thinks about. We're going to feel the same way they feel. We're going to desire the same things the culture desires, and we're going to look just like the culture. But if we set our minds on Christ, we'll be transformed like him. We need, guys, prolonged exposure to the glory, the power, and the purposes of Jesus. And so the plan for the next few weeks is to dig into the book of Revelation. We're going to be there for several weeks. I'll explain how long in just a little bit. But my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would use this book, which is very captivating, very dramatic, that, it would, that the Holy Spirit would use this to kind of cut through the fog and the distraction in our lives so that we'd focus on him. Because the distractions are about to get worse. And we're going to need the big guns. And so we're bringing out the big guns of Scripture, the book of Revelation. G.K. Chesterton said this, The world is alive with ancient things. And if you live only on newspapers, on the news of what's happening, you will never guess what's going to happen next. And I just feel like that's us right now. We live not newspapers, obviously, but, you know, social media and news sites and stuff like that. That's what we eat. And he says, if that's what we eat... We will not see the ancient things that are alive in this world and what's going to happen next. And that's what the book of Revelation does for us. As I dig into the book of Revelation, I just want to give you guys an intro. And I know for some of you, the book of Revelation is something you never touch. And I totally get that. And so what this is mostly this morning is an advertisement for the book of Revelation, okay? First thing I want to say about the book of Revelation is that it isn't just for experts. Okay, guys, this is a book, Revelation, it's of things revealed, not hidden, Okay, the book of Revelation is for you. It's not just for experts. If you look at the first line, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. It's about revealing, not hiding things from you. Okay, the book of Revelation wasn't written for experts. In fact, the experts are the worst. Okay, in general, the experts are the worst people to read the book of Revelation. G.K. Chesterton also said this, though St. John saw many strange monsters in his visions, he saw no creatures so wild as one of his own commentators, right? I think that we need to see that the book of Revelation was written to ordinary believers in ordinary churches. Take a look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written, for the time is near. There are seven blessings in the book of Revelation for those who read it and, and obey it. It's the only book in the Bible that starts and ends with a blessing to those who will read and obey it. It was meant for average believers to understand. What's in here is not beyond the ability of average believers to get. This is a book for you. Now you might say, Eric, that sounds good, except I've read it, and it's very confusing, okay? And I would say it can be confusing, hard to understand, but it depends on what we're looking for it to do. What are you looking for the book of Revelation to do? Because guys, you're probably expecting something from this book that it wasn't designed to give you. 
okay? We have about 150 years of baggage of kind of misuses of this book so that I can understand why you might open it and expect something from it that it clearly was never intended to give you. If we receive it in the way it was meant to be received, it's quite accessible. It's not for experts. It's also a book that's not for future people. You can say, well, that's the book for future people that are going to need to deal with some of these things. That's for people in the future. Look at verse 1. It says these are about things that must soon take place, things that were beginning to take place 1,900 years ago. Okay, so this isn't just for future people. It's for them, for us. Verse 3 says that the time is near. The time was near for these things to begin 1,900 years ago. Okay, so it's not a book for far off. It's not a book to be sealed up for future generations. Book of Daniel says that, right? Seal this up for later. The book of Revelation says the opposite. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. The book of Revelation was written for ordinary hearers from every generation, including the ones who read it originally, all the generations up into you, and all the ones that will come after you. The book of Revelation isn't just for future people, it's for you. The book of Revelation was meant to be heard and applied to the lives of every generation. And God's people have found enormous clarity and have found enormous hope in this in every generation. And you can read about the history of interpretation of this book, and you can find that people were encouraged by the book of Revelation during really tumultuous times, like the fall of Rome, or when the Mongols invaded Europe. That might have seemed like a book of Revelation moment, right? Or when uh, the Black Death came to Europe, or when the Protestant Reformation happened. They said famously that the Pope was the Antichrist. World War I, World War II, these were all times that believers turned to this book and found encouragement and hope. Now, sometimes they went a little far, claiming that it was the end of the world, claiming that this was the ultimate, you know, fulfillment of these things. But guys, the basic instinct, we can laugh at that, but the basic instinct is good. Basic instinct is good. To see what's going on in the world through the lens of this book is a very healthy thing. Let me give you an example. The original hearers of this book were churches that were under attack, and they were under attack in three ways, other ways, but the main three were. They were under physical attack. In the next chapter, you'll see the church of Pergamum. They had lost one of their beloved members, Antipas, who was killed under persecution. Can you imagine? So there was the attack of physical persecution. John himself was on the island of Patmos, right? A prison island for the, for the word of Christ. They were under re- attack of religious compromise. The church of Thyatira, we find out, was led astray by a lot of false teaching. So they're being attacked by physical things. Um, they're being attacked by religious compromise. They were also being attacked by materialistic seduction. We see that in the church of Laodicea, that wealth had started to numb them to the things of Christ. Any of you guys relate to that? Wealth can numb us to the things of Christ. And so there's these multi-level attacks. And when you get a little further in the book, chapters 12 through 18, you'll see that what is in the vision is something that brings graphic pictures to what's occurring. Okay, so in chapter 12, you'll see our enemy, Satan, the dragon, And then you see in the next few chapters that he attacks slyly in different ways. First, there's the beast, which represents mostly physical attack. These overlap in these things. But the beast, he represents physical attack. Then later you have the false prophet. He's attacking through religious compromise. And then you have later the prostitute Babylon, this city, and her attack is mostly materialistic seduction. You see all these things in graphic images. I want you guys to realize that for the most part, the book of Revelation does not give us new doctrine, new information, but puts it on graphics display so that we will feel and, and experience and our imaginations will be captivated by the truth of God. Are we under attack as a church? What do you guys think? 
Yes, of course we're under attack. Every church in every generation has been under attack. The book of Revelation, though, shows us that those attacks take different forms, right? Churches are attacked differently in Southern California than they are in the Sudan, right? We, some of us, have felt more under attack lately, feeling like our physical liberties are are under attack and things like that, right? But you were just as much under attack last year. You were just as much under attack last year by things like religious compromise and materialism. We, in our culture, are a little more sensitized to telling us what to do and what not to do, but we tend to not notice the religious compromise, where you start to feel like you can't draw any hard lines on what Christianity is or isn't, right? You can't draw any hard lines to say that's outside of the bounds of Christianity, right? The culture tells us, oh, don't do that. Who are you to judge? Who are you to say, right? And we're also under attack through materialism, right? Jesus, if we take Jesus' teaching seriously about wealth— we would treat money as a hand grenade, okay? We'd be like, get this out of here, right? I want this anywhere near me. And yet our culture doesn't think about that wealth like that at all, right? And so the book of Revelation helps us to see the various attacks that are coming upon us. It's revealing. That's why it's called the Revelation. So what kind of a book is it? The book of Revelation is actually three types of book, okay? The Revelation is a letter, the Revelation is a prophecy, and the Revelation is a part of a group of literature called apocalyptic. So first, the book of Revelation is a letter. So it's a letter. It's written like a normal letter. I think we miss this because we jump right into dragons and all this fire and stuff like that. And we miss the very beginning that, like, there's a letter written by John, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters of John. And he wrote it to particular recipients in verse 4. There's seven churches that are in Asia. They're listed in verse 11. They're listed in order of the courier's delivery route from the island. So John is off the coast of what is now Turkey in Patmos. He sends a letter to these churches where it's in modern-day Turkey. The courier would have taken them along a certain mail route. He lists them in that order. These are historic or real churches. It's just like Paul writes a letter to the Romans. Same kind of thing. It's a regular letter. It's written with a standard greeting. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you, right? Sounds like Paul, right? It's written in a particular time. We think most likely in the 90s AD. There's some disagreement about that, but probably around the 90s. So John's a very old man at that point. The revelation was written for a particular occasion. It's written to churches that are facing intense opposition, not just from society, but from the state as well. And it's not written, guys, to a bunch of people that had merely academic interests in prophecy, right? It was written to a group of people that were being prepared to die, right? You know, their wills were being uh, hardened to be able to die for Christ. So here's the significance. If it's a letter, then we need to interpret it in a way that would have made sense to the original hearers. Just like if you read Romans or you read 1 Peter and you think about, like, the historical context and who these people were, and you use that as part of the way you interpret the letter, you should do the same thing with the book of Revelation. It's interesting to me that the original recipients have been completely forgotten. So has all the whole first century context and all that, right? We immediately go like, oh, this is an Apache helicopter, and mark of the beast of the coronavirus, and, or, or the corona vaccine, you know, things like that. You know, like, we immediately jump to things like this. It's like, whoa, 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 back up, slow down. Let's start with letter written in the first century, who are these people? What did it mean to them? Because, guys, it can't mean something vastly different to us than it meant to them, right? Just like with any of the letters of the New Testament. We need to apply it to this historical context. So Revelation is a letter. It's a prophecy. We see that in verse 3. Take a look at it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So this is a prophecy in a long line of prophecies going throughout Scripture. And it beautifully weaves together 
all kinds of Old Testament texts. In fact, if I just did that this morning on this chapter, it would take way too long, so we're not going to do that. But there's about 404 verses in the book of Revelation. There's 500 Old Testament references. So there's more references to the Old Testament than there are verses. And some of these verses actually have multiple within them, right? Uh, Verse 7 is a good example. It says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail over on account of him. Even so, amen. He just spliced together Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12 in a beautiful way that points to Christ. I mean, the artistry of this thing is amazing. And the more you know the Old Testament song, the more you'll see the way the book of Revelation is sampling its beats. You guys know that idea? You sample beats from different songs, you put them into your song. That's what he's doing constantly. The more you know the song of the Old Testament, the more you're going to see the way that Revelation is sampling the beats of the Old Testament. And the more clarity you're going to have, it's going to gradually fill things in. You're going to be like, oh, I see what he did there. He pulled from over here. And that's a lifelong thing, okay? We're not going to do that in this series. It would be too much. It'd be way too much. It'd be too much for any sane person. This is the perfect book, guys, to end a perfect collection of books, okay? And when we think of the Revelation as a prophecy, one other thing we got to think about is that prophecy isn't only telling the future. That's the way we tend to use prophecy today. As we think of prophecy, we think of telling the future. But if you think about the Old Testament prophets, they just as often were telling how things really were in their day. There's something called foretelling. It's telling the future. There's something called forthtelling, which is telling it like it really is. Any of you guys have a friend like that? Tells it like it really is. Okay, that's what the prophets did. They were assisted by God to reveal the hearts of the people. That forth telling is kind of like the way we might talk about today when we think, oh, so-and-so has a prophetic voice. We're not saying that they, you know, tell the future. We're saying that they know how to speak into the moment. And so the book of Revelation does both. It does foretelling, telling the future, and forth telling, how things really are. You can see that in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are, and those that are to take place after this. A lot of the book of Revelation is actually forthtelling. Let me give you an example. Everyone thought, you'll, we'll see this in a couple weeks, everyone thought that the church in Smyrna was poor. Feel bad for it. Send it things. You know, let's send them some money. Let's send them some things. They're poor. What does Jesus say? They're the rich ones, right? Everyone thought the church in Sardis was alive. Everybody's like, oh, that's where the Spirit's really moving. Oh, you got to be there. Oh, you got to be in their worship service. Oh, it's amazing. What does Jesus say? It's dead, right? Everyone thought that the church in Laodicea was rich. Everybody's like, oh, man, to be a church like that, to have all those funds. What does Jesus say? They're actually the poor ones. Guys, throughout the Revelation, we're going to see that though the church looks weak and the empires of this world look invincible, the Revelation shows us that the church is invincible and the empires of this world are on their last leg. Think about the original readers and hearers of this that were living under the dominion of the Roman Empire. It looked eternal. It looked invincible. It looked like you would be a fool to bet on anything like the church in the face of the Roman Empire. Where's the Roman Empire now? We got cool architecture. You know, we got neat pillars. You can go visit it. It's gone, right? Where's the church? Still alive and well. In fact, much larger than it was in that day. The revelation shows us how things really are, who Christ really is, what the world really is like, and who we are. It's a prophecy. It's also an apocalypse. And this might be the most rare and unusual part of this whole thing for you, but the first word in the Greek text is apocalypsis. Apocalypse, guys, you guys, we need to change our vocabulary here, doesn't mean the end of the world. Okay? What word do you usually put in the front of apocalypse today? Zombie, right? 
right? Zombie apocalypse, right? Like you guys were like, it's church. I can't say zombie. Like that's the truth though. We put something in front of it, right? When we think apocalypse, we think end of the world. That's not what the Greek word apocalypse means. What does it mean? It means reveal. That's why the book, it's called the revelation, right? It, It means to reveal. It doesn't mean the end of the world. The apocalyptic literature was all the rage in the first century and is meant to reveal. It was intended to, be interp- to interpret the present things happening in the world through a supernatural lens uh, with the future in mind, with dazzling symbols. That's what you have here. And so you might be surprised, and a lot of the book is not about the actual end of the world. The book of Revelation also, guys, is a picture book, not a puzzle book. And this is what gets back to the last 150 years of interpretation on this. We tend to come at it as a puzzle book. We're going to take all the puzzle pieces. We're going to figure out a chart. We're going to make a timeline. If possible, we're going to put dates on it so we can know when he's returning, right? That's the way the game's played. Guys, the book of Revelation is not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. It's full of symbols. And guys, these symbols are actually not meant to be taken literally, And I know for a lot of you, Western Christians, for us, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going to take this literally? Guys, this book makes very clear from the beginning that you don't interpret all these things literally. If you did, what would you have? And most Christians know this. You're not actually taking all these things literally, right? Because they are symbols. We know that. When we we think of the picture of Jesus in this text, we don't really believe that when we see Christ, he's going to have a sword coming out of his mouth, right? Right? Maybe you did. Okay, well, let me just chill you out on that one. Okay, it's a symbol. It means something. We'll get to it. We see right from the beginning of the book that the things you see are symbols. For example, we see lampstands, but we're told they're churches. We see stars, we're told they're angels. We see this whole picture of Christ, and we know intuitively that these things are symbols. If we take the symbols in the book of Revelation too literally, we're going to miss the point. Did you guys see the beautiful Trinitarian greeting in verse 4? John says this, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ. This is a Trinitarian greeting. Father, Spirit, Son. Did you notice anything interesting about the Holy Spirit in this greeting? Seven of them. Okay, are we going to revise our doctrine of the Trinity? Are there now seven Holy Spirits? Is God nine in one? No, this means something. These are symbols. These are things that are meant to give us some understanding of the Holy Spirit. What might it mean? Well, symbols and numbers in the book of Revelation are highly symbolic. Seven is often a symbol, as most of you guys know, of completeness or perfection. What John might be doing here is to be talking about the Holy Spirit's perfection, the Holy Spirit's fullness. He says, hello, seven churches. And then he mentions seven spirits of God. What is he saying? The Holy Spirit's going to be with all of you. He's pervasive. He's throughout the world. He's complete. He's full in all of his, his manifestation towards you. The book of Revelation, guys, was designed to appeal to your imagination and your emotions, okay? Much like the book of Psalms. You think, I'm not comfortable with not interpreting things literally. You do it in the Psalms. You recognize the symbols in the Psalms. You know, he's got wings. He's putting them over you. Like, none of that's things that you do, right? Because you know this is poetic, this is symbolic, I'm supposed to understand symbols. The book of Revelation is to appeal to your imagination and your emotions, your heart, and it's going to be a lot more challenging for you left brain people than you right brain people. Like, this is going to be a lot easier for a person that's more of an artist than an engineer, okay? Engineers are going to be like, hey, like, where do I put the dates, and you know, what comes after this? And it's like, the book of Revelation is not doing that. 
If it was meant to do that, you'd open it and like roll a chart out, you know, like John's like, hey, and I included a chart so you could look things up. If that was the intent, that's what he would have done. The book of Revelation, guys, also to make it even more artsy is not strictly chronological. You may have noticed that when you're reading through, you're like, what's going on here? For example, Jesus returns at the end of chapter six, a little early when there's 22 chapters, right? He returns in chapter six. Jesus is born in chapter 12. Like, this is a little backwards. Like, what's going on here? You know, you're disoriented, right? It's actually not chronological. It's not linear. It's cyclical. In fact, it looks like the final judgment occurs probably six times in the book. It's not linear. It's recapitulating. It's, it's cyclical. And so what's happening, and maybe this is a good way for you to understand this, is that he's showing the same events from different angles. Like a sports replay where you might have, I know nothing about this, but uh, from what I hear when you watch sports ball, they'll have replays where they'll actually show from different angles what happened, right? That's what he's doing. He's like, hey, let's look at it this way. Okay, we're going to come back and look at it that way. And if you're expecting it all to be chronological, you're like, this makes no sense. But they're cycles. They're cyclical. And the intensity of those cycles increases as the book goes on. And so the book of Revelation, guys, is best viewed as a whole. Okay? It's best viewed as a whole. I think probably some of you, if you had a bad experience, you're probably getting too deep and too fine, you know, detail-y instead of seeing it big. A book of Revelation is like, it's like an impressionistic painting, right? You think about a Monet or something like that. If you got really close to an impressionistic painting and looked up really close, what happens? You're totally confused. You're like, what is this? I mean, if you're standing in front of a Monet in an art gallery and you were complaining because this whole thing's just so confusing, what would Monet say? Back up, bro. Back up. And you back up and you're like, oh, now, I don't get everything that's going on here, but I see a general story. I see a general flow, and it's creating a certain type of uh, courage in me, and it's creating a certain type of joy and a certainty in God's purposes. The same is true of the book of Revelation. We've got to stand back and let it play out in front of us, and you'll see Christ, the world, and yourself in a whole new way, and then you'll know how to obey the book, right? Um, and I'm not saying you never want to go up close, but if you find yourself super confused, back up. <laughs> back up. You're looking at it too close, because the book of Revelation is best viewed as a whole. We're going to go through briskly. Okay? And I'm serious about this. We're going to go through briskly. 22 chapters. If you were to address all the things that were in it and all the details and stuff, you could do it for years easily. This first chapter we could have done for at least a month. Okay? We're not going to do that. Why? It's not because I'm lazy. It's not because I, you know, can't concentrate or whatever. It's actually a teaching strategy because I want you to see the big thing. If we get all detailed, what's going to happen is you get confused and lost and stuff like that. And so will I. So we want to go quick quick through it because I want you to get the themes, not parse all the details. I'm aiming for about 10 weeks. I would have loved to do seven. That would have been awesome. I tried really hard. Seven weeks in the book of Revelation would have been legit. 12 might happen. Uh, we will not do 144,000. That would be overdoing it, though you could, okay? But we're not going to do it. In some ways, this whole series is going to be an intro. I want to give you the lay of the land so that you know how to like grab a hold of it and hop in it and actually find benefit from it and get refreshment and courage when you need it from the book of Revelation. So it's not just sitting at the end of your Bible going like, that's for those crazy people that I see on YouTube that are, you know, have three hour long shows, you know, it's not just for them, it's for you. So here's what I'd recommend. Even this week, open the book of Revelation, okay? Read it all the way through and better yet, listen to it, Okay. So if you go on our email list, I sent you a Dwell uh, app subscription thing. It's like a month free. 
download that or find your favorite audio Bible and listen to it. If you notice from the beginning of it, it says, blessed are those who read aloud and hear, right? And so what you want to do is you want to hear it. You want to hear it aloud. And that's why we'll have good length scripture readings throughout this because it's meant to be heard. How did you guys, what did it do to your soul to hear Christina read the first chapter of the book of Revelation? I mean, it made me emotional. I was like, okay, not now. <laughs> this is not good timing. Shove the emotions in. You know, I don't have time for this, right? It was intense, right? That's the way it's meant to be. And so what you want to do is sit, listen to the whole thing. It actually doesn't take that long. And forget all the charts and the timelines and the details. And just let the images kind of wash over you. Just let the images come. See them. Appreciate them. Don't try to analyze them all. But just experience it. Think impressionistic painting, right? And then catch the major storyline. If you look in Revelation 12, the major storyline is about a woman, okay? And this woman is God's people. And she's in distress because she's being hunted by a cruel enemy, the dragon, Satan. And yet there is a great hero, right? Her husband, the king, who rescues her. That's the general story. And then at the end, they live happily ever after. This is the fairy tale that's true, right? This is the fairy tale all fairy tales are based on because this is the true one. The big question you want to ask when you read the book of Revelation, though, is, are you with the dragon or are you the bride? Because the book of Revelation, guys, is very black and white. We are very pluralistic. We're very sensitive. We're very inclusive. Even you guys, believe it or not, are like that. Because that's what you are in culturally. Even if you're a really difficult person, you're probably way more inclusive than a first century person, right? And so when we read the book of Revelation, we're a little like, whoa, easy. It's not good guys and bad guys. It's a little more gray than that. It's not true. Okay? Book of Revelation shows us you're either with the bride or you're with the dragon. It's very black and white. There's no neutrality here. Um, we, we tend to think people are neutral and they're not. We tend to think we're neutral and we're not. Okay? So you're either a part of the faithful bride or the dragon. The book of Revelation is a revelation of the world, how it really is, revelation of our own hearts, and it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I just want to real quickly look at the last few verses to show you that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Take a look at verses 12 through 18. What can we see about Jesus at the end of this book? We, first thing we can see is that Jesus is near. Take a look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. This is really cool. This is temple imagery. Yeah, this is temple imagery. The way I know that is Jesus is wearing priestly clothes. There's lampstands. This is like Jesus, son of man, Jesus, walking around in the temple, right? Except, who are the lampstands? They're us. Because in Christ, we're actually welcomed into the presence of God. Jesus is walking around in the temple, but the temple is us. Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches. Which means that we are in the actual temple of God. We are the temple of God. Isn't that beautiful? He's near. Jesus is also the human king of all nations. That term in verse 13 Son of man, Jesus' favorite term for himself. It comes from Daniel 7.13. And it not only points to Jesus' humanity, which is what you think it's about, but also points to his reign over all nations. Jesus is the human king promised to David that rules over all nations. Jesus is all wise. Take a look at verse 14. His hair, the hairs of his head are white like wool, like snow. He's all wise. John actually takes an image here from Daniel 7, but not of the son of man. 
He actually splices together this idea of Jesus being the Son of Man, the exalted king over the whole world. And then he takes the description of the Ancient of Days of God himself and merges them together. He's actually calling Jesus God by using this symbol. I mean, we're going to see this throughout the book of Revelation. You see God, you see Christ, and over and over again, you see their equality. You can see that Jesus is no less than God himself. Jesus is all-knowing. Look at verse 14. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Notice the word like and as. They're all throughout this book because these are, he can't even say what he's seeing. You know, he looks at these eyes Jesus has. He goes, all I could say is maybe like fire. You know, they look like a flame of fire. And once again, there's not an actual description of Jesus' actual eyes. This is saying that Jesus sees through things with a holiness. He can see through the events of this world. He sees through the veneer of the churches. He sees all the way down into your very own heart. It's totally open to him, right? Once again, we see that Jesus is dangerous. Look at verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Um, Like a soldier's boots, Jesus' feet are prepared for war. They're hardened like burnished bronze. And we'll see throughout this book that Jesus crushes his enemies. He's dangerous. I think that's important for us to remember. You guys remember the old Chronicles of Narnia thing, right? You know, when they're talking to, uh, Lucy's talking to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And she says, oh, you know, I'd, I'd be afraid to meet a lion about Aslan. And she goes, is he safe? And what does he say? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe. And we see that in the book of Revelation. We see that he is dangerous in verse 16. His mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. This is, once again, not a little description of him, but we will see at the end in Revelation 12 that Jesus destroys all of his enemies with his words. He doesn't even need to physically do anything. You know, these battles all set up, and then he can just destroy them with his word. Jesus is glorious. Look at verse 15. His voice is like the roar of many waters. How many of you guys have been in Niagara Falls? You know, how many of you guys have been like in an area where there's just intense pounding surf, where it's like you can't even hardly talk, it's so loud. Jesus' voice is like that. Jesus' voice is like, is powerful like the crashing surf. It's majestic, it's amazing. His face, it says, is like the sun shining in its full strength. Jesus' glory, his ascended glory, is so bright you can't look at it. Like, what happens when you stare at the sun? You will literally burn your retina. You realize that? It isn't just that it hurts. It's that you're literally destroying your retinal lining when you look at the sun. Jesus' glory is overpowering. It just knocks you over. How should we respond to the Jesus of Revelation? Look at verse 17. We should respond like John did. What did he do? I saw him, and he fell down as though dead. And I fell down as though dead. John fell as if he was dead. John knew something that we tend to forget, which is that Jesus is the scariest being in the book of Revelation. By far. Might be like, oh, the beast is scary. Oh, that false prophet. You know? Oh, Babylon. You know? Oh, these, you know, people martyring people. This is also scary. The scariest person by far in the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. And so what happens next? What does Jesus say to him? He says, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. It's what happens when you find the person, the only person you ever should have feared in your whole life, and that person says to you, don't be afraid. How cool is that? 
when you find the person, the only person, the only being you ever should have feared, and he says to you, fear not, I have paid the debt of your sin, and you're my beloved bride. That's what happens to John here. If you trust in Jesus Christ, that's what happened to you too. You came in touch with Jesus. You saw he's the only one you ever should have feared. You responded in faith and repentance, and he says, fear not, right? And then what happens? Well, then you have the courage to face anything, right, guys? John was never again going to bow down to the Roman Empire or the opinions of others or materialism. He found the one he should bow down to, and he was saved by grace from him. You're going to have courage when you see this. You're going to stop fearing death because Jesus is your resurrection. You're going to stop fearing uh, shame because Jesus has given you his glory. And you're going to stop fearing poverty because Jesus has given you all his riches. That's what the book of Revelation is designed to do. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper declares to us how we receive Jesus' resurrection, glory, and riches. And we receive his grace. We receive his, fear not, you're my bride, I'm not your enemy anymore. And we receive that by trusting in Jesus Look at verse 5. There's a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful little statement of the gospel. If you say, what is the good news of Jesus? Verse 5 says that he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. How beautiful is that? So simple, so little, right? How do I know I'm okay with God? How do I know my whole future is secure? How, how do I know that, that, that life is, um, is good and that good things are coming and that, and that I have a hope for the future? How do I know that I'm right with this holy God that I see in the book of Revelation? And it's very simple. Because Jesus loves me and he freed me from my sins by his blood. Is that what you believe? Is that what you believe this morning? For those of you who are online with us today, is that what you believe? Guys, there's no use pretending. His eyes are a flame of fire. There's no use pretending. There's no use going through motions. There's no use like playing Christian. It's so much harder to play Christian now anyway, right? Isn't this whole thing? Thank you guys for wearing masks, by the way. I really appreciate it. I personally can't be here if you guys weren't doing it, so thank you. You're allowing me to be here. But playing Christian's hard. (laughs) It got a whole lot harder all of a sudden, right? No use pretending. Jesus sees through us. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus? If you're a Christian this morning, if the answer to that is yes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take the bread, which represents his body, and the cup, which represents his blood. The bread reminds us that that rescue mission that the king came to save us, his bride, cost him his pierced body on the cross. The cup reminds us that his very lifeblood is what was needed to wash away our sins. If that's your hope, we'd ask you to take that with us this morning. Parents, make sure it's appropriate for your kids. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father and our God for the hope that this meal gives us, that Jesus will return as the triumphant king, the dead will be raised, and all the people will stand before him in judgment. And Father, we face that day without fear, for you, our judge, have become our savior. May our daily lives of service aim for the moment when the Son will present us to you holy and without blemish, because we're washed in his blood. Let's take it together. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of Christ is the bread from heaven. Let's take it together. Father, we thank you that as that bread is crushed under our teeth, we're reminded that your son Jesus was crushed for us. 
Jesus, we thank you that you willingly laid your life down for us. It was not taken from you. It was given by you. And we thank you. Let's take the cup. Take, drink, remember, and believe that the blood of Christ is the cup of salvation. Let's take it together. His blood washes the foulest clean. That's me. That's us. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that we don't have to carry our shame, carry our stain, carry our guilt. We don't have to carry that as a burden around. You haven't put us on a repayment plan. You haven't put us in time out. You haven't distanced yourself from us. You haven't put us outside the camp. You've cleansed us completely. You remember our sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you taken our sins from us. You put it behind your back, and we thank you. We thank you that we can walk out of here with another assurance that we are a justified, purified, holy people in your sight. Though we are sinners, though we continue to sin, you make us clean. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, as we worship you, that we'd worship you with the kind of joy that is appropriate for people that have been forgiven all their sins, for people that have found out their entire debt has been removed, for people that have found out that their debt can never accrue again. Father, we pray that we would worship with those hearts and with that kind of joy, despite all the various burdens, Lord. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.